You are listening to the Ivy Podcast. Learn from the thought leaders in areas of strategy, innovation, negotiation, and all things leadership. We interview the Ivy League, Fortune 100, and top startups. Now, here's your host, John Karsibayev. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Ivy Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, someone whom I've been trying to get on the podcast for the longest. If we got Stephen May recorded, then I'm confident that we can get anybody on this. Mm-hmm. Anyways, Steve is the Vice President of Cloud Services at Ultimate Software, and he has been with the company for almost 10 years. For those of you who don't know, Ultimate Software is a leading human capital management and employee experience solution cloud provider. This company has been consistently ranked as one of the top places to work in the U.S. Steven is an alum of Florida State University. Welcome, Steve. Glad to have you on. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great. So, can you, do you mind just telling us a little bit about your role at Ultimate Software? What, what, is the, what are the different functions that you oversee within the company? Sure. So, my formal title is VP of Cloud Services. I'm up underneath our technology organization. And basically, the, the different components that um, I'm responsible for is data center and infrastructure, things like site reliability engineering, chaos engineering, um, some customer activation, um, just a lot of the behind the scenes operational type items um, here at Ultimate. So I have a peer that manages development and that creates our wonderful product. And then um, basically my teams take it from there to deploy it and to put it in our customers or deliver it to our customers' hands via our SaaS-based model. Excellent. Um, You've mentioned chaos management. Can you just expand a little bit about that? What, what does that entail? Yeah, sure. So chaos engineering um, has been around for um, a little while now. And basically what it means is um, to have the tooling and the practices to quote unquote create chaos in the environment. So to basically intentionally cause outages and disruptions and performance bottlenecks so we can learn and, and practice on how to handle those events and also identify some of those issues prior to them actually impacting customers. So we can kind of control that chaos, cause issues in the environment, and really learn and uh, solve some of those challenges again before they they really hit our customers. Great, great, thank you for sharing that. You've transitioned from a founder or partner of your own company to a large corporation as Ultimate Software. Um, just wanted to take get your take on what was that transition overall like and what were some of the key takeaways? I know it's been almost 10 years ago, so, but uh, anything that you can point out? Yeah, so I, I would say first and foremost, um, the risks and rewards um, are a little different. So being a small business owner, um, obviously there are a lot more um, lucrative reward, but at the same time, um, I didn't actually have to worry about making payroll anymore. So again, the risks and rewards were significantly um, more dramatic being a small business owner um, than kind of fitting into a large organization. Uh, secondarily, um, it was a little tough um, in the onset because I did have the ability to really shape the business by making some of those key executive decisions. And so now I was in a, a different role, kind of just supporting the executive decisions, but those were being made um, you know, with our board and our senior management team. So it was a little bit of a struggle to kind of make that shift. Um, but I basically had to reinvent myself, understand that I was more of in a supportive role. Um, and that was a little bit of a challenge, but once I got my mind wrapped around it and had the right mindset, I was able to accelerate and, and contribute. Great. Thank you for sharing that. I can definitely relate to that. Uh, having done that myself, going from a personal, you know, the startup that I started and going back to corporate. So I can definitely relate. Um, 
going a little bit more specific into your current role within Ultimate Software, um, transitioning from cloud-enabled to cloud-native technologies, which strategies, to, to the extent that you can share, um, have you deployed that allow you to succeed in the market of cloud HCM, where you're competing against some major companies? Yeah, so that's interesting. So for us, um, being that we have close to a 30-year history um, of, of almost exclusively building our own data centers, um, our expansive uh, data center investment always keeps our private clouds at play. And so if we were a startup, yes, I would look to maybe do something that was um, cloud native and uh, maybe specific to one cloud, for example, with Google and AI, they tend to be the leader in that space. And if I were to have a startup today, I would jump all in uh, and be able to take advantage of some of their capabilities. But given the fact that we have already had that huge investment in data center, um, what we're actually also finding is as we're exploring more in the public cloud that it's um, definitely not a cost play to go to the public cloud. It's actually a lot more cost effective for us to run in our own private data centers. So our strategy has really been around um, leveraging multi-cloud or hybrid cloud for various business drivers. And what I mean by that is for things like DR is a good use case for us to use public cloud because now instead of having or expending all of that capital to have DR assets, you know, basically just sitting there uh, waiting to be consumed for a DR event, now we don't actually have to have that capital spend and we have the ability to burst into the public cloud um, in the case of a DR event. So that's what's one avenue. Another couple of avenues um, that we're looking at for public cloud is really time to market. So we're looking to expand our global footprint and start approaching the European Union market. And instead of expending the cost of building out a data center there, it's much more cost effective in that use case to start with public cloud, develop a presence, and then potentially consider building a data center in that space. Um, in addition, again, speed to market. It's a lot easier for us to get product out the door on you know, infrastructure that's already been built in a public cloud. And then once we actually can um, reinforce our, our private cloud behind the scenes, then we can actually move those workloads from public to private to take advantage of the cost savings. So for us, our strategy is really build product that's portable that can run not only in our private cloud or in our own data centers, but also in the public cloud. And so that's kind of what our strategy has been in terms of building product is basically develop it in a way that we can run it anywhere and then let the business drive where we're actually going to do the deployment. Great. Definitely. Thank you for sharing that. So to take that question a little bit further, um, from your perspective, what are some of the trends in cloud computing that you you see will grow faster than other technologies in the next few years? Yep. And, and also, if I may, um, I did want to kind of go back. You mentioned competition and how um, our uh, public cloud or hybrid or multi-cloud strategy is effect, uh, impacting competition. So for us, it's, it's interesting. So we have, being a SaaS business, we do have a large uh, percentage of our customers that actually really don't have a preference as long as we're meeting our SLA. So whether it's private, public, uh, a large, uh, large amount of our customers, um, again, really don't have that preference. But then it's interesting because we have other customers that love the fact that we have our private data centers because we can, they know where their data is at and we can protect their data in our own data center walls. So that's attractive to a segment of our customer base. And then also there's other customers that are on the flip side of that that have a perception that there's no way that we can run our infrastructure and provide security at the same uh, depth that let's say a Microsoft or a Google or Amazon can do. So we're kind of split. We have some customers that don't have a preference, some customers that really like the fact that we have our own data centers and can host their data there. And then we have other customers that really prefer us running in the public cloud. So going back to that hybrid strategy, we can meet all of those different needs.
So that talks a little bit about competition. Um, and right now there is a lot of consolidation. So a lot of our competitors are moving to the public cloud. And so we do have the capability to do that. But what we're also finding is, is because we're not fully committed to public cloud and we can still run things in our own data centers, we can actually, and do it at a, at a cost savings, we can extend that cost to our customers. So we can actually deliver our products and, and services for um, you know, sl slightly better savings or, 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 or better costing to our customers because we still do have the ability to run in our own more cost-effective data centers. So then moving on to cloud trends, um, which was your next question. So what we're starting to see in cloud trends are a couple different things. Um, as many people that are moving to the public cloud are as, as many people that are moving back to private cloud. I think a lot of larger organizations um, you know, had, had made that move to public and it started really realizing the same things that we've realized that it's actually more costly to run in the public cloud if you're not managing your workloads appropriately. So a lot of people are actually moving back to, to private if they can. Uh, so that's one trend that we're seeing. Um, and so for those organizations similar to us, um, they're developing a hybrid strategy. So in some cases, it makes sense to run in public. In some cases, it makes sense to run in private. And that's really uh, where a lot of the trending is right now is those hybrid workloads. And we can see that in a lot of the new offerings that are coming out from you know, Google and Amazon. So Google has uh, recently released their Anthos product, which is a hybrid solution. Um, we have Amazon uh, AWS Outpost. So, so VMware has their own solution. So right now, there's a big play in, in that hybrid market. So not, be, not only being able to run in public, but able to manage those workloads on the private side as well. And that's really the trend that we're seeing there. In addition, we're starting to see a lot of consolidation. And so um, we're starting to see things like really around the infrastructure management. So VMware, believe it or not, is becoming, again, a common standard across Google and Amazon. So if you look at that Google Anthos solution that I just managed, you really need VMware under the cover. So even though it's running in the Google Cloud or running in your own data center, Google is actually relying on VMware to deploy that. And similar with Amazon and similar with uh, Microsoft is that we're consolidating around some of the underlying um, technology foundational items like hypervisor um, to VMware. And then similarly on the networking side, there's consolidation across the big three cloud providers to things like either Cisco ACI or uh, VMware NSXT. And so right now, a lot of those things are in terms of network and hypervisor and infrastructure are being commoditized and really consolidate, consolidating around a couple of key players. So the value added components for all the big three um, cloud providers are really around costing and their hybrid capabilities. And so that's where they're making a lot of investments. And so um, that's kind of some other trends that we're seeing in the, in the market. That's great. Definitely. Thank you for providing more insight into that. <clears throat> and obviously to achieve a lot of those initiatives and complete with success, you, you guys require some of the um, very unique skill set, very niche skill set to be part of you guys' teams. Um, can you share a little bit more as far as what are some of the most challenging roles for you to fill and, and why is that? Yeah, so it's uh, it's interesting that you say that because um, even some of the more um, historical or common roles like developers um, are even um, evolutionizing or revolutionizing to not just be developers, but also have to have an understanding about testing and also have to have an understanding about operations. So with the big DevOps movement, now just developers, they really have to understand the full stack of developing features to doing deployment and even managing those workloads in production. So even your standard developer um, has kind of gone through a shift over the last you know four to five years. So 
it's becoming harder and harder to find developers, but then also um, some of the more new world skill sets like the site reliability engineers or the chaos engineering engineers um, and even security is still really difficult to find folks. So I think um, from my world, from the cloud perspective, it's really around those different areas, really around site reliability engineering because it's a, it's a rather new domain. Um, chaos engineering is, is relatively new. Um, security, again, continues to be um, challenging to, uh, to find. Great. Um, Ultimate Software has been known for one of the best places to work at. Um, what are some of the creative strategies that do you deploy to attract the top talent for your division and your teams? Yep. So for, for Ultimate, um, it's really multi-pronged. And so uh, from one, one point of view, uh, we still use uh, traditional recruiting or staffing organizations. And but what we're finding, though, is that there are organizations that are, are, are kind of um, specializing in some of these skill sets. So whether it's site reliability engineers or DevOps or security, uh, we do see some of the, uh, the players out there on the staffing side kind of um, specializing in some of those areas so they can actually build a, uh, build a good hot book of candidates for us. So we're leveraging those, those entities to help find talent. In addition to that, um, we do a lot of college recruiting. Um, these, those aren't for the more uh, senior skill sets or more for the junior skill sets, but we have a lot of relationships with a lot of the key, uh, key schools in the Southeast where we're doing a lot of recruiting to help finding talent. Um, and then also um, we are starting to make a shift um, between finding senior talent to um, starting to find kind of young raw talent and then grow them. And the reason for that is because of the scarcity of some of these skill sets that we're looking for and the premium that we have to pay for those resources once we find them um, is starting to cause us to question that model and trying to pursue other avenues. So now what we're doing is spending more effort in creating kind of career learning um, and technical tracks here at Ultimate so we can go out there and find those more junior folks and then provide them with the necessary training uh, to meet the, the demands of the job. So that's been a big trend for us again is instead of trying to spend a lot of effort on, on finding those kind of needle in the haystack skill sets that are in very high, uh, highly demanded areas to kind of shifting towards more hiring more junior folks and training them up and that's been a, one of our strategies. But going back to what you said earlier is that it's definitely helpful for being recognized as one of the best places to work in the U.S. And in terms of a recruiting tool, uh, that's, I think, been um, one of the, the biggest value adds that we can bring. So uh, as we're approaching top talent or top um, candidates that are considering other opportunities, I think um, us being known for our culture and being known for one of the best places to work in the U.S., I think helps kind of uh, set us apart from some of the other companies that they're looking at. As part of as you guys attract that top talent, um, um, I know firsthand there's multiple rounds of interviews. Um, it's a it's it's an extensive process. Um, to the extent that you can share, what what are some of the most challenging question types that you like to ask, and what do you look for in some of these responses? Yeah, so that's that's a um, that's a great question. So um, as you mentioned, we do have an extensive technical screening process. So we have exams and kind of project-based interviewing where we ask candidates, at least on the technical side, to perform certain tasks or to, um, you know, to, to problem solve certain problems. Um, but once they get through that part of it, typically when I'm interviewing, I ask a lot of behavioral type questions to see more if they're uh, a right cultural fit or mindset um, fit. So some of the questions that I ask um, out, of the, out of the many 
um, are things like, tell me about a time where you felt strongly about an idea and you wanted to go and get that idea adopted, but for some reason it wasn't adopted. Um, you know, what contributed um, to that idea not being adopted? What did you learn and what can you do different? And so it, that really tries to expose um, the kind of the learning mindset of the candidate can also admit to, you know, potentially, you know, not being able to land an idea. What did they take away from that experience? How did they handle that experience? So it, it kind of sheds some light into um, kind of their overall mindset. So there's other questions also like um, a good example would be tell me about a time where you felt very confident about an idea that you were socializing and it even come, came under conflict but you were steadfast and you pushed your idea but then later learned that your position was wrong. How did you handle that situation? How did you kind of um, um, recover from that? Did you experience any loss in confidence by the people that you were working with? So just kind of tell me about some of those experiences. So I try, I have a probably a good uh, two dozen or so of those behavioral type questions that I like to ask to kind of get through um, to really kind of how they operate and how they face certain circumstances from a behavioral standpoint. A good portion of, um, of the listeners of the Ivy podcast are the MBAs or the upcoming MBAs from top schools and I hope that they actually uh, taking some notes um, as part of this this answer. So yeah. thank you for sharing that. Yep. Um, <clears throat> so good segue that you've talked a lot about behavioral type questions or answers that you look for in during the interview process. Aside from those technical and niche domain skills that you guys validate through the process, yep. what are some other top traits that you perceive as critical to success for software engineers and why? Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. And I think a lot of my answer is going to be driven by really our culture. And so um, we have had some, some uh, high IQ folks that have come in and maybe not have had some of the other skills that I'm about to talk about. And even though at some, some cases they were the smartest people in the room, uh, by not having some of these other skills, it think, I think it limited their success not only here, but uh, could potentially limit their success at other organizations. So typically, what we're looking for are things like selflessness, um, you know, respecting of others, being very humble, um, adaptable to different um, changing um, dynamics in the organization. Also, a proven history of wanting to learn, somebody that's always looking to learn new things and not only learn new things, but to share them with uh, other folks in the organization. Um, and I guess last but not least um, is really to be able to have healthy conflict. So one, not being able to share their uh, not being able not excuse me not being afraid to share their opinion, um, but also to have healthy conflict and, and understand how to drive to resolution through healthy conflict. I think those are all important things for us, not only for software developers, um, but pretty much uh, I think that goes for most of the, the roles that we have here at Ultimate Software. Great, that's very interesting and thank you for sharing that. So obviously to, you know, to be ahead of the competition, to study a lot of the trends in, in your field, you must read a lot. Um, I like to ask that question to a lot of the guests on the, on the podcast is, what are the top two books that you always recommend to others and why? Yeah, so that's interesting. I think that uh, ebbs and flows, but if I were to look back and uh, pick out kind of the two books that I think had the biggest impact on, on my career, uh, the first is a book called The Advantage, and it really talks about how to um, dr uh, drive or lead high-performance teams. And really, the, the premise there is it all starts with trust. And if you don't actually have trust with the, the folks on your team or the people that you're leading, it's really hard to ascend to the other levels up to the, the, the pinnacle of high-performing team. 
And so that book actually talks a lot about um, different exercises and is prescriptive about how to build trust and the things that you need to do to build trust with not only your, your peers, but the, the people that you're leading. So that's one. And then the second one is a book called Getting to Yes. And it's basically a negotiation book, or it's basically how to come to conclusion or go through healthy conflict without giving in and figuring out ways to not only get your needs met, but meet the needs of the other folks that are involved in the conversation. So it's a very helpful book for somebody that um, historically early on that struggled with negotiating and having that healthy conflict. It was a good book to help kind of give me some pointers and guidelines on having very constructive uh, negotiation sessions or helping bridge conflict when there's uh, two parties of opposing views. So it's been a very uh, impactful book for, for me. That's that's great. I, I've, I've definitely heard of Getting to Yes, and it's one of the books that I've, I've been meaning to read as well. So thank you for sharing that. And for the for the listeners, we'll make the links for the for those books mentioned in the episode notes. So in in conclusion, um, anything that you would like to add as part of closing remarks, anything that we have not discussed, uh, I don't know, favorite quote or anything like this? Yeah, sure. Just really, um, I want to talk about just two quick topics. Is um, The first is really around innovation um, and kind of our, our quick overview of our innovation story. But for us, um, being a high-tech company and also trying to be a leader in the market, innovation is obviously key to what we do. And we've kind of struggled with what is the right model for the, to enable um, innovation. And um, we did things like uh, 40, our 48 hours events where we still do those today, which is basically we give um, everyone in the organization a, f- a 48 hours um, essentially to work on anything that they want that they think is impactful for the business. So that's one thing that we like to talk about. Um, but also we tried different things like innovation week where we would actually dedicate a full week to come up with innovative ideas and you could work with anyone across the entire organization on essentially any topic and then at the end present. And in a lot of cases, those ideas, um, in some cases we have formal panels of judges and the winners of those either 48 hours events or innovation weeks. Um, a lot of to- uh, times those ideas get supported and potentially even put into our product. But also, what we've done at more of a team or micro level is uh, over the past year and a half, we've started uh, measuring the amount of time that we're giving to our teams to work on things like innovation or training. Because what was happening before is we were always expressing that it was important, but the daily grind of getting your job done always was getting in the way. And so we wanted to make sure we started measuring the amount of time that we were giving to innovation and making sure that our managers were giving adequate time to the teams to do those type things on a regular or quarterly basis. And so that's kind of been um, been very successful for us. And obviously we would reward the managers that were giving their teams more time to innovate, but also uh, making sure that that innovation time was producing real outcomes. So as part of our quarterly business reviews, we do measure um, our progress in terms of how much time we're giving our teams, but what are the tangible outcomes that are coming out of that innovation space? And uh, it's been a real eye-opener and has really made a positive impact on the business. And then the second piece is, uh, from my own perspective, um, I know there's a, a lot of work in the psychology space, but um, for me, um, what's been helpful is really to try to understand the different dynamics of how people think. So yes, we, uh, my day job is figuring out cloud strategy and what we should do from a technical perspective, but what I've also found of unique interest for me personally is really a lot of the psychological aspects and how that helps drive um, high-performing high or high-performance teams. And one of the examples of that that I would just like to share is um, 
there was one scenario where we had some of our teams that were feel, feeling very overworked. And so from a leadership perspective, we thought that was an easy problem to solve by saying, well, we're just you know, going to prioritize and really not give you so much. So you know, we had more of a work-life balance in this case. What, what we found out is that from a team member perspective, um, for folks that were actually delivering on the teams, um, they had kind of a different perspective. They actually wanted to prove that they could do what management asked and kind of had a, an ego about it and wanted to show that no matter what leadership gave them, they could grind it out and get things done. So for us, it was a pretty easy problem to solve that we thought we could just kind of give them less. But actually, from a psychological perspective, the people on the team actually wanted more to show that they can actually, again, grind it, get things done, and uh, prove their value to senior leadership. And so it was kind of this interesting dynamic. And um, until we really understood their perspective of that, um, we were missing and we were still kind of putting them in a situation where uh, it was self it was um, self provoking from their side. They wanted to work more uh, because, again, they wanted to show their value. And so that was like, inter again, very interesting for me to understand uh, the, fo the folk psychology on the teams, because then it, it helped me craft kind of the next steps, the next part of the strategy to help kind of offload and give them better uh, work life balance. So um, it's really just, uh, again, uh, I would encourage anyone to really just try to get in the heads of the folks that you're leading, really understand their perspective. I know that's cliche and goes without saying, um, but psychology is such an important part of building those high performance teams. So instead of trying to figure out what's the best strategy or what are the the key, you know, the the best key performance indicators, a lot of driving that performance is really getting in the, the heads of the folks uh, that are that are a part of your group. That's great, <clears throat> Steve. I know you're a very busy guy, so we'll let you go. I want to take a moment. Really, thank you for taking your time to talk to us today, and I look forward to uh, for us to catch up in a couple of years to see where you guys are at. Perfect. Thanks thank so you much. For, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Ivy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our RSS feed on ivypodcast.com and all major podcasting platforms like Spotify and iTunes. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes.